0: You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. In this episode, a massive data hack at Australia's National University. Danielle and Tom from our cyber team discuss the latest ANU data breach. Our roving reporter, Brendan, interviews Samir Patel from the Gateway House thinking We catch up with Alex Josky to find out the latest on his research uncovering Chinese military research collaboration with foreign universities. But first up, what costs $105,853,573.77 per day? Our two grumpy strategists, Michael Shoebridge and Marcus Hellier, give you the cliff notes to Aspie's annual defence budget brief, The Cost of Defence.
1: Well, Marcus, um, it's this time of the year again. Another cost of defence. So mm-hmm. you've done your analysis of the defence budget for 1920. What are the headline numbers people need to know?
2: Well, headline numbers are 38.7 billion for the total defence budget. That's about 1.93 percent of GDP and an increase of 1.3 percent on last year. So the budget is continuing to go up. According to the budget papers, it will hit 2% next year and meet the government's white paper commitment. So should we keep talking about this 2%? Well, I think that the 2% issue is a bit of a red herring, actually, because the government promised to hit 2% by 2021, but didn't really say what happens beyond then. And it never said it would pin it uh, mechanically at that level and in fact if when we look at the budget papers and the white paper funding line uh, the trajectory continues up and it goes up past 2% it gets to about 2.2% by the end of the forward estimates so in another 3 years time and it stays there for the rest of the white paper decade which goes out to 25 26 and so it's well past 2% if you look if you say take you know 23 24 the difference between where the defence budget will be at and a 2% line is over $5 billion a year. So it's quite a big difference. And, and I think we can be pretty confident that defence is actually planning to spend every single cent of that money. So in in essence, we're well past 2% already. So defence is planning to spend more than 2%. The yep. government's committed to give them more than 2%. Yep. I
1: suppose the only thing that changes that is if there's a major problem in broader
2: economic growth. Well, that's that's right. So the government actually has lived up to its uh, white paper commitment. It has delivered the funding it said it would, so that's uh, a good story. If we look at the growth rates, GDP growth rates in the budget papers, they're, they're fairly ambitious. Um, they get up to about 3% in the outer years. Um, meanwhile, we've been stuck around about 2.5% for a very long time. So what that would mean, if GDP grows slowly, 2% of GDP would grow slowly. So that difference between where the defence budget is heading and the 2% line gets bigger and bigger. So if the government or, uh, decides to sort of maybe rein that spending in, defence will take a very big hit. Mm, but at the moment, that's all being delivered. Now, that's all hypothetical at the inside moment. the budget?
1: So what's the story of the capital program?
2: Well, so um, the, the story inside the budget is if you look at the three big kind of uh, buckets, there's capital to buy new stuff, there's sustainment to actually operate it, and then there's people to, to man it. The Historically, uh, capital has been the poor cousin, not just in our defence force, but around the world, uh, but that is coming up. It's hit uh, 30%, and it's the trajectory, if you look at the budget papers and the white papers, is it'll hit uh, 39 or 40% overall share of that pot. So because the pot is getting much bigger and capital's share of it is getting much bigger, the capital budget is increasing incredibly rapidly. Have we
1: started to see that yet? Um, is Defence Media its white paper path on capital?
2: Well, it's, it's spending more, but not as much as the white paper predicted. And you could ask why is that? Well, partly because it takes time to ramp up big projects like shipbuilding. But the other issue is, I think defense underestimated the cost of sustaining systems. So uh, the capital budget has uh, underachieved by several billion dollars, and the sustainment program has cost more than, than expected. This is since twenty sixteen. S- since so twenty sixteen. Right. Now, as we move into the future, if capital, I, I think it will be challenging for the capital budget to hit forty around forty percent and stay there. If you're spending that much money on capital, you also need to be spending money to operate the equipment, and then you also need to be spending money on people who can operate the equipment. If you look at the white paper, the number of people, uh, the increase in the white paper is very small. It's, it's under 10%. Mm. So I think um, it will be hard for defence to actually spend that kind of money. I think there is a kind of natural equilibrium that will be very hard for defence to break out of. So to keep spending that money on capital
1: your logic is, well, there'll need to be more money to operate the force and to have the people needed yeah. to operate the yeah. force. Now, moving on to the mega projects. So last year, you, you had quite a focus on on the big projects, mm-hmm. you know, JSF, land vehicles, but particularly shipbuilding. How are those projects progressing?
2: The shipbuilding program is moving along pretty well. So with the government's picked a future frigate design, we've got into a contract for that. The shipyard is being built, so there's good signs there. The OPV, so the Offshore Patrol Vessel Project, had a very ambitious schedule, and defences hit that. It was meant to cut steel in 2018, and it has, so that was very good work. Future Submarine Project had a lot of difficulty signing the head contract, so the so-called Strategic Partnering Agreement. Two and a half years of negotiation. Two and a half years of negotiation. You seem to indicate there's some pretty significant philosophical differences going on there. But that has been signed, and immediately after, Defence signed the design contract with Naval Group. And so we're, not only are we seeing progress, but obviously when you're doing work, you have to spend money. So the cash flow in the naval shipbuilding program is ramping up very quickly as well. So that's going to be over $2 billion this financial year. In one year on in, ships and submarines. On one year on the ships and submarines. Um, and we're still, I'd say, about three years away from construction of the future frigate and maybe four years away from the start of construction on the future submarine. So we're already hitting $2 billion a year, and we're still a long way away from actual construction.
1: Do we know how much money is going to be spent on the submarines before the design phase is finished?
2: Well, that's interesting because um, the government has now approved $6 billion total in spending on the future submarine project, and that doesn't include acquisition of any boats. and. Um, t- Earlier this year, the head of the Future Submarine Program at Senate Estimates said by the time the design process is finished, we'll have spent about $4.5 billion. And similarly, Future Frigate, uh, government has approved $6 billion on that so far, and that doesn't include acquisition of any ships at all. So we're you know, to, looking at uh, $12 billion before we actually start construction.
1: These are eye-watering numbers. So how much do you think is going to be spent by the government and the taxpayer before the first frigate or submarine turns up?
2: Well, last year we uh, said it could be $20 billion before the first uh, submarine enters operational service around 2034 and the first frigate enters operational service around 2030. Between the two of them, uh, we thought maybe $20 billion. And looking at these numbers, I think you know maybe $20 billion is underestimating it.
1: So, just for context, in today's numbers, how much did the six Collins submarines cost?
2: I think it was a little over eight billion, if you take um, if you convert it into today's dollars, and that was the design and also delivery of six submarines.
1: So, this is why you pointed about those cost pressures out of spending that much on capital and the hard choices it might mean around sustainment and operating. Uh, so, your net assessment this year, Marcus, looks to me like. The white paper funding is being delivered. The white paper implementation plan is broadly on track with some real pressures there. But you also point to uh, the need to start hedging more seriously. And I wondered if you could uh, just talk about the emerging conceptual challenge.
2: Is this the right plan? Well, uh, so we spent some time looking at this in, in the report this year. So the force that is being delivered um, by at the moment, particularly in the maritime space, is essentially the force that came out of the 2009 white paper. We're not actually getting that force until the 2030s and 2040s. And so essentially you have to ask yourself, we're spending a very large amount of money uh, on a force that by the time it arrives is 30 years after it was first designed. So I think um, there is a role for the government to do a due diligence exercise to check that it is still the right force. So I'm not saying that they should cancel the future frigate or the future submarine, but they do, I think, need to go, all right, what has happened in the in the world? And so we, we know that China's power is growing very rapidly, their investment in military capability is growing very rapidly. And we're also seeing the proliferation of new systems such as missile threats, but also a large range of autonomous and unmanned systems. And so that's the environment that our new platforms will be going into. The other thing that we're seeing is that most Western navies are shrinking in size because of the growing cost of mm. ships. Because they're so com- complex, they're so expensive. So the US Navy is shrinking. Royal Navy is shrinking. Our navy's sort of growing, but only because of the massive investment that we've been talking about that's going in, into mm. it. So the, the question is, how do you maintain mass in your naval force? How do you maintain a survivable but also lethal naval force? And I think the only way to kind of break out of that kind of vicious cycle that we're in is to explore autonomous systems. Mm-hmm. And is we know
1: for two reasons. So one, the costs are so much different. So you reset the defence budget costs away from those big expensive mm-hmm. manned platforms, but also for capability reasons.
2: Yeah. so on cost reasons, once you take the human out of, whether it's an aircraft, a vehicle, or a ship, or a submarine, the design uh, becomes, makes it much easier to design them because so much of the cost and risk uh, is involved in keeping humans alive. If you don't have to keep humans alive, the cost goes down, the risk goes down, and the schedule actually gets much faster. What that would means in the future is autonomous systems are going to be evolving very, very quickly, I think, much more quickly than traditional manned platforms. So we we saw just recently during the election campaign, the government said that they won't be upgrading the old manned mine hunters. Instead, we'll be moving much more quickly to autonomous mine clearance. Mm-hmm. So there is a, some willingness in defence to explore this. But I think the question is, you know, how much faster can we go? Well, if we want to go faster, you're going to have to fund it. So I think defence does need to find a way to rebalance some of that spending. Mm. And so some of that big investment in traditional platforms, I think, needs to be freed up to accelerate investment in a- autonomous systems. So maybe
1: now is the right time for a full structure review, if, if not a white paper.
2: I think there needs to be some strategic review done to make sure that, you know, the balance is right, that we've got the balance right between innovation and also the kind of traditional platforms that are not going to disappear overnight. Great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael.
0: This week, the ANU revealed it experienced another data breach in late 2018. The ANU Vice-Chancellor, Brian Schmidt, said that there was unauthorised access to significant amounts of personal staff, student and visitor data extending back 19 years. The data could include names, addresses, date of births, phone numbers, personal email addresses, emergency contact details, tax file numbers, payroll and bank account information, passport details, and student academic records. Tom and Danielle from our cyber team had a quick chat to discuss what this all means.
3: Hey Tom, we are we are back to talk about the ANU hack detail is a little bit scant. We don't know if it's the same hack as last year or a completely different hack. Some media believe that around 200,000 people could have had their information access and taken out of the system. I was one of those people. I have all my sort of personal details in ANU, including my resume, personal information, financial information, which I think at this stage they're saying has not been taken, So I wanted to ask you, why has ANU been targeted potentially once again?
4: Um, It's hard to know why they were targeted because there's so little information. It could be just opportunistic. It could be cybercriminals happen to somehow get in and they're always looking for avenues to find data and if it were them, they would probably try and either blackmail ANU, pay us or we'll release this data, or they would try and sell it on the internet somewhere where other criminals would try and make use of it. The other possibility is that it's some sort of state actor who would be after profiles of people that they could perhaps target to recruit or could perhaps suspect uh, would be conducting espionage against them. So the most likely culprit, if that is the case, is China in that they've stolen large data sets in the past and it seems likely that they're correlating these data sets to do exactly that, to look for, for opportunities and to identify foreign intelligence agents. And you said that the hack started in late 2018 and it was only discovered a couple of weeks ago. Usually cybercriminals are much more get in and out and move on because they want to keep making money. They would sort of mine whatever there was to mine and then move on. That it's about what five or six months later makes me think that perhaps it was a state actor because they're... they they tend to be persistent because they're paid to do a job and they've got requirements that endure. So if I was to guess, I would guess China, but there's simply a whole lot of information that we don't know yet and perhaps we'll never know.
3: So do you think ANU has done the right thing here in waiting, I think, about two weeks since they first learnt about this latest incident? Uh, And then a follow-up question, what else could ANU, but other universities as well who are also targets, be doing?
4: I think two weeks seems pretty reasonable. So they said that they were doing remediation and making sure that they didn't leave any loopholes, opportunities open for them to get back in. Um, There's always a trade-off between announcement and remediation. So I think two weeks seems pretty reasonable. I think they've been pretty poor at their crisis communications. So data breaches are a fact of life. I think it's wise for places to have a plan of uh, what to do when that happens, and it always seems to me to be more reassuring when people are transparent and admit that there's a whole lot of stuff they don't know.
3: Now, I always think of ANU as the training ground for national security officials in Australia, which is why I think a hack like this or a data breach is so worrying. What do you think government officials who are doing training courses at ANU and providing over their resumes, all of this information about their personal and work history, should be doing then when they're engaging universities in these types of courses, knowing that it's quite likely that information could be stolen?
4: I kind of think that in the current environment, almost everyone's information is insecure. So I don't know that this particular hack, it's a graphic illustration of the problem, but I don't know that it means anything really truly different for those kind of people. They should know that they're in positions where they need to be careful. They should be taking appropriate steps. They should be getting training pretty much every year explaining what the risk is and how to minimise that risk. Of course those are all shoulds. I'm sure that's not true (laughs) for everyone in that community. But what really worries me is people who maybe are not in that community yet, but this kind of breach gives the opportunity for them to be compromised before they're even aware that they're a target. So there's an example in the US of a young American who was recruited while he was overseas. And this kind of breach gives potentially foreign states the ability to identify people who they think might be worth recruiting and that would, because of perhaps a good academic career, be you know good candidates for the public service down the road. So that's what I worry about a bit more than, than current officials.
3: Mm. And do you think, if the Australian National University figured out which state or non-state actor was behind this breach, and given how much media attention there's been on ANU over the last year or so on this topic... Do you think they should attribute this breach to a state or non-state actor?
4: I don't think it's ANU's job to get into the game of attribution, but I think it's really useful for the public to have some idea. So what we've seen in the past has been fairly strong backgrounding from national security officials to journalists about who they think was responsible, and I'd like to see that continue. I think the government as a whole is trying to use attribution as a deterrent, and I think if they felt that this kind of espionage fell outside the rules of engagement that they thought was appropriate, that they perhaps would attribute it. I'm not sure whether there's enough information to tell. So I would hope for, if the technical data supports it, an unofficial attribution, that as a minimum. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Daniel.
0: Last year, Alex Joski published his groundbreaking research on China's People's Liberation Army in collaboration with foreign universities. Elise from our cyber team caught up with Alex to talk about the significance of his research and what's next.
5: So Alex, you uh, wrote a really well-researched report called Picking Flowers and Making Honey. Do you want to tell us a bit about that?
6: So the title of the report comes from a Chinese saying that I've seen the military use a lot, which the full saying is Picking flowers in foreign lands to make honey in China. And they really seem to use that to describe what they're doing overseas in terms of collaboration with universities and scientists from around the world. And that's what the report looks at. It looks at the Chinese military's research collaboration with foreign universities.
5: And so what were some of the key findings?
6: Well, it found that the Chinese military has probably sent out around 3,000 scientists overseas in the past decade or a dozen years or so. And that these scientists are studying fields and technologies overseas with direct uh, value to Chinese military research back in China. Uh, But there's very little oversight of this. And even in cases where these scientists have used, uh, these Chinese military scientists or officers and cadres have used uh, extremely blatant and poorly designed forms of cover, claiming to be from universities that simply have never existed. Uh, they've still gotten into countries like Australia.
5: And what kind of sources did you rely on for this report? So was it mostly open source research or was it...?
6: Yeah, it was all open source research and it was just um, relying on essentially the fact that the Chinese military uh, is, is pretty open about some of these activities in Chinese language and it just takes a little bit of time to go through that material and and sort through things and get the big picture from what the Chinese military itself is saying about these activities.
5: And so why do you think they're so open about these activities?
6: Well, it's gone on now for uh, well over a dozen years, and there's been no attention from the West on, on Chinese military scientists going overseas, essentially. So I think they've really, you know, they don't even have to use cover to come to Australia or to go to the US. They can say I'm from the People's Liberation Army National University of Defence Technology, and they'll get a visa to study uh, artificial intelligence or computer science overseas.
5: And do you think that's sort of reflective of a certain naivety in the West?
6: Yeah, I think it, it just ties together with an approach that a lot of countries have held towards China, which is the idea that you can the guiding principle of our China engagement and our China policy should be to encourage China to liberalise, and work with it so that we can influence its direction in a positive way. But I think now we're becoming increasingly jaded and we're recognizing that that actually hasn't played out uh, the way we thought it would and China's becoming less liberal. So that sparked uh, quite a broad reevaluation of the way we engage with China. And this is just one of those areas.
5: So one of the, the issues that we see in in some areas, um, for example, business ownership is that like a lack of reciprocity. So for example, Chinese business owners may Be able to go out and buy businesses in certain sectors in the West, but those same businesses can't be bought by foreigners in China. Do you see a similar dynamic here where, like, for example, can can Western researchers go and research sensitive topics at Chinese universities?
6: Yeah, I think I think there's a a starking lack of reciprocity in a lot of areas of the relationship as a whole, including this area. Uh, So you see universities will sign partnerships with Chinese military-linked universities where those Chinese military linked scientists will come over here and study things like microelectronics. And then in in exchange, uh, Australian universities are sending people over to study Chinese language. Mm. So it's not really reciprocal in terms of uh, a genuine exchange of knowledge. It's more like these scientists from the Chinese military are coming here primarily to gain uh, skills and receive training that they don't think they could actually get in China.
5: And where did you get the idea for this research from?
6: Um, It just started when I was looking at university engagement with China and I came across a handful of Chinese military scientists and this report was really trying to look at the big picture and work out the scale of the phenomenon and the objectives and and the impact of it.
5: And looking specifically at Australia, how how big is the problem here?
6: Per capita, we engage in about six times as much collaboration with the Chinese military uh, uh, compared to the US. That's based on measuring uh, academic papers that Australian scientists have co-authored with Chinese military scientists. Uh, We've probably taken in around 300 Chinese military scientists in the past decade, and two of our universities rank in the top 10 around the world for collaboration with the Chinese military. So we hit above our weight.
5: (laughs) Good for us. Um, Do we have any sense of where those 300 scientists, uh, where their research um, has gone now?
6: Yeah, we, well, you can, you can look at, um, I think the Chinese supercomputer program is a really great example. Uh, so the University of New South Wales has done a lot of collaboration with Chinese military scientists, training them and, and working with them on supercomputer technology. And back when this collaboration started around 10 years ago, China was, was up and coming in the supercomputer world, but it, wasn't, it was far from the top. The US clearly dominated Nowadays, it has the world's fastest supercomputer. Actually, that might have changed in the past year, but for the past few years, it's been at the very top of uh, innovation for supercomputers and has some of the world's fastest supercomputers. And I think it has around half of the 500 fastest supercomputers in the world. And specifically, the the Chinese military plays a major role in the development of Chinese supercomputers because they're used for code breaking uh, and in, in, particular, in particular, of particular interest to the Chinese military. They can be used to design uh, aircraft. You can simulate wind tunnel testing much more quickly than you can by building a massive wind tunnel. And you can simulate nuclear explosions, which is, which is pretty valuable when, uh, you know, there's a nuclear test ban treaty. Um, so about 10 Chinese supercomputer scientists from the military have studied at, at the University of New South Wales and gone back, and it's it, you know I'm, I'm sure that that expertise has in some way contributed to the Chinese military supercomputer program.
5: So, what's the reaction been in the in the six months since you released the report?
6: Yeah, well, it's um, it's generally been silenced from Australian universities, as far as I can tell. When I was researching the report, I asked to meet with the ANU and Universities Australia, but neither of them uh, seemed interested in hearing about these issues, at least from me. But Uh, There has been quite a strong reaction to it, I think, you know, from government and particularly in the U.S. where some senators have introduced legislation to try to uh, uh, deal with these issues. There's a bill called the PLA Visa Security Act that's currently being introduced to Congress over there that would ban uh, giving research sort of student exchange visas to members of the Chinese military.
5: And and so what are you working on to follow up on this research?
6: I, I really see the report as a kind of case study of where engagement on research collaboration can go wrong and just showing how, in a lot of cases, it's quite clear due diligence, if it's being carried out, isn't being carried out effectively. So now I'm hoping to develop and publish some more tools that actually help uh, refine the way we engage with China and give people access to more knowledge and and so that there's actually transparency in engagement with China. So that includes things like putting out more information on the Chinese university sector so that people can understand the linkages between Chinese civilian universities and and the military and get a sense of um, the risks associated with that kind of collaboration. And also looking at China's efforts to recruit scientists from overseas, which is um, starting to attract a lot of attention around the world You know, a number of scientists involved in these Chinese government talent recruitment programs have actually been arrested in the US. And I think we haven't really had a discussion about uh, our own policy towards scientific talent in Australia.
5: And do you think there's sort of a, a growing awareness or sensitivity within universities towards the particularly the PR aspects of this kind of cooperation. So for example yesterday um, I was looking at the UTS website. The UTS has a um, a, a partnership agreement with CETC um, which is the company which designed the app which is being used to monitor Uyghurs in Xinjiang Um, and they had a project on Big Data Vision um, that they were cooperating with CETC on and they've now taken that project off their website. But as far as I can tell, the project is ongoing. Um, so do you think there's more of an awareness that they are at least being less public about their cooperation, if not necessarily stopping it?
6: Yeah, I think um, I think uh, there's an increasing reputational risk from this, these kinds of poorly thought out uh, collaboration and engagement with Chinese entities that might have moral or security implications that aren't beneficial to Australia's or, or the university's own interests. And we've seen that particularly with the large number of universities that have announced in the past few months that they're ending their relationship with Huawei. Uh, but it's important that, uh, I, think, I think this discussion should really apply to China engagement as a whole. You know, we really need a much more uh, effective risk management and due diligence approach to ensure that our engagement with China actually aligns with our interests. Thank you, Alex. Okay, thank you.
0: Brendan caught up with Samir Patel, who was visiting from the Gateway House think tank run by the Indian Council on Global Relations. Samir is a fellow on the National Security Studies Program and was a guest of DFAT on its Special Visitor Program.
7: Samir, thanks very much. Um, It's great to talk to you. One of the big issues that's come up in Australia over the past year was the possible use of Huawei technology for our new 5G network. Now, Australia made a decision that we would not go with Huawei. And I realize this is something that has exercised India as well. One of the problems that exists for countries that decide not to go with a company like Huawei is who do you go to? Where does one find this technology? And I was personally quite surprised to find that you can't get it in the United States, for instance. Do you have thoughts on this and a possible solution?
8: It's not like a solution, but uh, obviously there are uh, competing companies which are giving that kind of technology, probably not at on the same uh, price terms as Huawei. And of course, obviously there is Nokia, there's Ericsson and there is Samsung. Uh, in fact, Nokia and Ericsson were the leaders in the mobile communication before the rise of the Chinese uh, or even the South Korean uh, uh, c- companies. So there there are those companies which are available. In fact, uh, India is commencing its uh, trials of the 5G network next month. Uh, and the companies that they're reaching out are exactly these three companies, Nokia, Ericsson and Samsung. Huawei had expressed interest, but India has probably, uh, has right now taken a mute stand whether it wants Huawei to participate in that kind of uh, Uh, technology testing.
7: Do you think that there's room for cooperation among countries like India, Australia and the United
8: States to actually develop this technology? There is, obviously, obviously, um, that's a natural area of cooperation for the quad countries, or at least India, Australia and uh, United States. primarily also because of the fact that well, 5G is going to become the mainstream in the next two or three years, but we have to be a little more futuristic and look at what kind of technologies will be available, let's say, 10 years down the line or five years down the line in terms of mobile communication and data transfer. And I think there will be some role there for the space-based uh, assets. So I think that will be an area of cooperation for the countries such as India, Australia, and United States to develop those standards and the technology for that particular period.
7: An issue that I imagine... India sees slightly differently to Australia is the Quad. We hear a lot about it in Australia, but does India have any interest or see any value in a military alliance with the United States, Australia, and Japan? And does India consider that would be simply a distraction from India's main military focus on its land borders with Pakistan and China?
8: Land borders, I think, is a persistent challenge. The land border dispute with China and Pakistan is a persistent challenge uh, for India. But I think uh, India has also realized that if it has to project its power and the great power potential, then I think the oceans or the seas is the only way. And therefore, it looks at the Indian Ocean and the Indo-Pacific as the natural area where it can project that kind of uh, power. With regard to the Quad, I'm not sure whether India would be comfortable with the idea of military alliance because if you look at traditionally India's uh, foreign policy and security policy posture, it has been, it has remained a non-aligned country and then after that it has maintained what is called as a strategic autonomy in terms of its uh, foreign policy and security policy posture. So there is a room for India, Australia, Japan, and United States to come together. But I also firmly believe that military collaboration, or not necessarily alliance, military collaboration, should be the starting point. And I think there should be another ways. Uh, I mean, other ways in which Quad should be reimagined to focus on some of the other areas of cooperation, which are common given our uh, expertise. I think those areas should be also be explored. I think that would give a much more firmer footing for the Quad. What sort of issue? What sort of areas? So, obviously, uh, one of the areas which I work on is cybersecurity, and the fact that if you look at the Indo Pacific, most of the security challenges at the Indo-Pacific, apart from the great power uh, military competition, are still non-conventional security challenges such as money laundering, such as uh, people smuggling, such as drug smuggling. A lot of the times, the cyber criminals or uh, the money laundering which happens through the cyber means provides is, a, is an enab- enabler for these activities. And I think that would be one area in which the Quad countries can come together to capacity building for the smaller countries to make sure that they are able to tackle these challenges, which will then help them to address the non-conventional uh, security challenges. The second is, as I said, you know there could be an area of uh, area of working together would be to develop the next generation uh, uh, standards for mobile communication and data transfer. I think that would be another area of cooperation for all the four countries together. So I think th- th- I mean I I look at these two. Therefore, I think you know, those would be the two. But I'm sure there would be another I mean other ways also in which this collaboration can be expanded.
7: What significance is there from a regional security point of view in Prime Minister Modi's re-election?
8: A couple of issues. One is obviously the fact that Prime Minister Modi uh, made sure that India was at international table when it came to important international agreements. Even international Solar Alliance or the G20 could be some examples of this. If you look at the regional security, I think uh, the fact that Prime Minister Modi has consistently put focus on the neighbourhood and the Expanded neighborhood to encompass the Southeast Asian countries. I think that is an important area, uh, important dimension when it comes to the regional security. Uh, Now, BIMSTEC leaders on India's east have been invited for the swearing-in ceremony of Prime Minister Modi. I think that would be uh, that is that's an important area. The fact that India is laying emphasis on the expanded neighborhood, which it thinks will be its gateway to Southeast Asia and to uh, East Asia in terms of market connectivity as well as the Expanded uh, Indian participation
7: is some sort of Quad agreement more likely under Modi.
8: It's uh, difficult to uh, answer that particular question because a lot also depends on what will be the Chinese behavior. We know that there is there has been a certain degree of rise in terms of the assertive Chinese behavior, but I think the Chinese also would be a little more circumspect to see, you know, that their actions would not be sort of a provocation for a, f- a further up- upgraded. Quad uh, activity. And I think similarly, there is also consideration from the Quad side that they should not be also giving that kind of signaling to Beijing that would initiate some kind of aggressive uh, Chinese behavior. But having said that, I think if not an agreement, I would see a consistent level of interaction happening between the Quad countries. But I also believe that that interaction uh, can be sustained only if the Quad reimagines itself as an alliance which started off with some sort of military collaboration or strategic collaboration but came to focus on some of the other strategic issues which are common uh, for the, the four countries put together.
7: Is there any hope of an end to the bitterness and tension between Pakistan and India uh, in the wake of the terrorist attacks in Pulwama, Jammu and Kashmir in February you suggested that legal measures through sanctions and economic measures could perhaps achieve as much as as, as as a violent response?
8: A lot depends, I think, on uh, if at all there is another attack from the Pakistan-based terrorist with the support of the Pakistan establishment. So any sort of outreach will depend on whether there is any change in Pakistani behavior. There are certain measures which uh, obviously uh, we have here, we uh, at Gateway House have advocated in terms of changing the Pakistani behavior. But if those don't achieve the result, then I think a lot depends also on whether there is any appetite within the Indian political establishment to do that kind of outreach to Pakistan when there is no change in the ground situation. If you look at the previous five years, Consistently, India has reached out to Pakistan despite no change on the ground situation. And every um, instance of outreach has been met a few weeks later with a terrorist attack. So right now, there is less appetite in the Indian political establishment to engage with Pakistan, which is quite evident from the fact that unlike 2014, this time uh, India has not reached out to Pakistan uh, for inviting its prime minister for Prime Minister Modi's wedding ceremony. So a lot depends, as I said, it depends on the nature of the, uh, if, if there is a terrorist attack. If there is no terrorist attack, I think that would probably create some sort of support to initiate that kind of change in the Indian approach towards Pakistan.
7: Was it a mistake not to invite Imran Khan to the inauguration?
8: I think given the fact that the, the elections itself were fought in the shadow of the Pulwama attack and India's airstrike in Balakot in Khyber Pakhtunwa I think it was the right decision uh, because... Uh, As I said, there is no appetite right now to make an outreach to Pakistan, especially as the security situation in the Jammu and Kashmir continues to be uh, as volatile because of the Pakistani deep state support. Yeah, China
7: is viewed by Australia both as a key pillar of our economy and a potential security threat. How does India under Modi view China and to what extent could India become a major economic and strategic partner for Australia?
8: So just like Australia, I think India has a mixed approach towards uh, China, which is quite evident from the fact that uh, Prime Minister Modi has quoted China for the assistance in in terms of infrastructure development for India's own domestic uh, requirements. But at the same time, he has been firm on the Chinese uh, behavior when it comes to the border dispute. The fact that uh, the People's Liberation Army has been making repeated incursions into the Indian territory to Claim that as a Chinese territory, and the response coming in from India has been quite firm. So I think it's a mix of responses, and the fact that to much of the tenure of uh, Prime Minister Modi, because of the repeated terrorist attacks which has been carried out by the groups such as the Jashim Muhammad and the Chinese, have been objecting, putting a technical hold on the designation of the group's uh, chief, Maulana Masood Azhar, as a global terrorist by the United Nations Security Council towards. The, in the in the middle of the elections, Chinese actually lifted their technical objection, which allowed the designation of Mussudhar. So there is I would say out, uh, there is an appetite for outreach to China because I think the Indian establishment has been of the view that the, that the only way right now probably to uh, given the situ, the volatile situation of Pakistan is to engage with China and plus the fact that Chinese have been uh, sensitive of the Indian concerns when it comes to the issue of terrorism.
7: Going back to those terrorist attacks in February um, and the airstrikes that followed, given time has passed, have you any clear idea of what actually happened in terms of what targets were hit by the aircraft and
8: what aircraft were shot down by whom?
7: It appeared quite confusing from here.
8: So the fact remains that Pakistani did lose an F-16, which is evident from the fact that uh, India has produced the uh, evidence, both the technical as well as the actual evidence of the air-to-air missile which only the F-16 uh, fighter jets use, plus the fact that India hit out at the largest terrorist training camp uh, at uh, Palakot in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which had repeatedly figured in the uh, interrogations of the various uh, terrorist uh, operatives done by both the Pakistani security forces, the Indian security forces, as well as the American uh, security agencies. And that camp had also figured prominently uh, in the aftermath of the 2005 earthquake, when uh, there was a considerable damage to the terrorist training infrastructure in Pakistan. And Balakut was noted as one of the major facilities that has been damaged. May thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back soon with some special episodes covering our Future of Warfare conference, War in 2025. As always, we welcome your feedback. You can leave us a review on iTunes or tweet us at aspie underscore org.